Auntie's Three Stories. Welcome to the Representing Her podcast. My name is Esther and I'm your host. Stories give us an opportunity to learn from another person's experience. It can help shape, strengthen or challenge our opinions and values. Tune in each week to hear how my amazing friends and connections have navigated their journeys thus far. Let's explore those big and small questions together that we as young people have when it comes to our careers, our financial wellness and our personal wellness. As we go exploring, I am super excited for us to find those practical tools and answers together. So grab a drink, get comfortable and settle in. Welcome back to another episode of the Representing Her podcast. Today I'm here with a really good friend of mine, Bada. I mean, I don't know where to start, Bada. Bada's been really influential in my career journey till date. I think that, you know, you've been really influential in just helping me understand the investment world better. And yes, just encouraging as well, really encouraging person, just a fantastic person to be around all around. Yeah, so I'm really excited to have you here. Thank you so much, Esther. And thank you for those very kind words. Um, I'm also very uh, lucky and thankful uh, to have met you and met uh, so many other. Don't make me cry. Because (laughs) it's true, Esther, because, you know, it's uh, everything we do is a two-way street, right? So, uh, so everything we do, I know we give and take. So, so, um, so thank you as well to you, Esther. Before we get into this episode, there's a question I love to ask everyone who comes on here, which is what are you grateful for this week? Or what are you happy about this that happened this week? This is going to come across maybe as odd, but uh, this week I'm very grateful for a friend of mine to have uh, changed my view on a topic, to be more precise, uh, this friend of mine is uh, fond of, you know, honey and bees, and as you know, uh, the conversation on, on sustainability out there. Uh, but I never really thought about the uh, insects as our friends, right? I mean, we you know we we grew up like in a different environment, and we think about them as hostile, right? <laughs> and it kind of changed our perspective as uh, the insects are also our friends. So so really kind of like sending me all those articles and. And telling me his passion for for bees, like really changed my view on, on so many things, right? So I'm kind of grand, grateful I have him as a friend in my life, but also that you know he kind of changed like a, a huge point of view that you know a bias that I had growing up, right? So mm. so that's something I'm very grateful for. How did he? How did your friend come across bees? Does he work with bees? That's that's just a really interesting thing. Does he work with well, them? He, or? Now he does. Now he does. Ah. He used to work in uh, in diplomacy for twelve years. Uh, he was uh, working with uh, VIP representative for the embassy, and oh. um, and then he came across a beekeeper in uh, the southern part of France, and and he tried like a honey, the buckwheat honey, and he kind of like fell in love with it. And uh, from there, he just decided to kind of learn more about it. And uh, from the tasting to the flavors, to the flowers, he got to kind wow. of realize that everything comes down to the bees. Mm. Um, and even like, uh, you know, something that you know, Esther, 75% of food depends on the uh, yes. pollination 
Yeah, uh, I didn't know it was that percentage, but I knew it was a pretty high. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's huge. And anyway, so this friend of mine now has uh, 100,000 bees on the rooftop of Selfridges. Wow. Yeah. As in yeah. Selfridges in London? Correct, yeah. Here oh. In, uh, in central <laughs> London, yeah. 100,000 bees. And he kind of like, I went with him. He showed me how to dance, you know, and then they do a dance in an eight uh, shape. Uh, Interesting. And then they, they, they tell you the direction where, where they're going to go and how far they go. So you could tell ah. you whether they go to Regent's Park or Hyde Park and so on. And, and I truly felt in his eyes he was in love with the, the bees, right? And for me, it was, it was odd. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he shared with me all those uh, articles at the beginning. I felt just polite, you know, to read those articles, right? Also, you weren't really interested, but you were just reading it to... You know yeah, I mean? to make sure, like, okay. like, when he does ask me and uh, I have something to say and so on. But step by step, he kind of, like, got me on his side, right? And now I'm like, wow, this is insane, right? How long did it take you to switch and become a bee lover? Six months. You know, it's only this month, (laughs) like this week. Wow, six months. This week that I I kind of woke up and I realized that he changed my view. And then I felt like, wow, this is huge. You know, I don't think of insects anymore as hostile. Like, you know, you grew Mm. up, you have those like, you know, products at home to make sure there's no no spider yeah, no kill, yeah. Insects yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and uh he's uh, against all of it right and it's only this week i'm like i agree like this shouldn't happen you know wow. so those are like where i'm like well i'm grateful he he changed this uh this opinion i had for so many years wow that's actually such a lovely story i didn't expect that when when i asked you this question and now i just feel like mine's pretty simple <laughs> compared to you well, I'm <laughs> no, just, gonna... just, just me receiving as well right so yeah I'd be happy to introduce you uh his name is Khalid right because he's also part of the uh now the uh, diversity at Selfridges and oh, nice. uh and uh it's it's really cool you know it's really really cool what mm. what, uh, what he's done but also like just thinking of something that is not related to us in appearances Mm. but is 100% related to us through what we eat right yeah that's fantastic I would definitely love to be introduced to him so yes we can definitely make that happen so I'm just going to throw the question back to myself what am I grateful for this week or something Mm. I'm happy about this week well I'm really grateful for Sarah I mean brother you know Sarah we both work with Sarah and yesterday we went out to dinner and it was so lovely we went to um Din Tai Fung I think it's sorry if I butchered the name for anyone who knows this restaurant but it's a Chinese restaurant in Cover Garden and it was so lovely so she's been to it she's been to this restaurant in I think three different countries in Singapore Mm -hmm. I forgot the other one but this is the only branch of that restaurant that's in the whole of Europe right and it's in Cover Garden wow. I went wow and the food was absolutely fantastic like I love food so I was just like Sarah thank you so much for this it just made me so happy so that's that's my thing for the I'm week I'm really grateful I'm for fantastic so Bata, these episodes are just to speak to you about your experience and you know who you are your life story till you came to be introduced to the investment management industry. But I know when I actually told you about this initiative, you were so supportive of it. I care about diversity, but I know you do too. So do you want to just speak a little bit about why you actually 
care so much about diversity, especially within this industry, and what your thoughts around that as well? Oh, for sure. Thank you, Esther. And thank you again for, for uh, inviting me on your podcast. You know, I think, uh, I think it's, a, it's a great initiative. I think it's great what you do. And uh, just like, you know, what I wish for is for a lot of people to do the same thing, you know, just to, mm. to have a voice and to carry that voice uh, out there. So, as you know, I'm Moroccan. I'm from, I come from Morocco, right? And um, Morocco is this country that people know of in the southern part of Europe, but in the northern part of Europe, nobody really knows of, right? They think of Marrakesh and, and so on. And, and Morocco is just this country which is like a bit of a melting pot between uh, multiple other diverse groups, right? Whether it is from Europe, from Africa, from uh, the Arab world, and so on. And, and that's where I come from. And um, I was uh, American. I had the opportunity to to uh, to spend time in France, in the UK, in other countries. And uh, obviously, growing up, you know, you you try to look for people who are uh, similar to you. You know, looking at uh, similarities, but also at uh, differences. Right. Obviously, my natural inclination was uh, to look for people who were the same as our, like you know, and this kind of young kid from a. Moroccan background Mm -hmm. and uh, I never really thought of it consciously I would say as a kid it's only when I grew up and became an an adult or a teenager that really much you know diversity was uh, was something important to me because I felt uh, when I was a teenager that uh, minorities like myself and others uh, didn't have a voice and didn't have as much access uh, and knowledge about what they could do in this world right and uh, just this lack of knowledge, this lack of information, this lack of awareness uh, was to me like one of the biggest challenges. So on a personal level, I know growing up, I was never really uh, fluent in the investment in, in the investment world, right? I didn't know the existence of it and the different shades of it as well, right? Mm. Uh, so that was uh, something that, you know, I didn't have. Uh, luckily, and, and uh, as you know, Esther, I, I used to be a scientist, right? So yeah. So science was more, <laughs> more something that, you know, I was aware of. Yeah. But uh, the other industries, I just thought, you know, they were not for us. You know, like there are quite a few industries. I was like, yeah, this is maybe not for us, not for us, not for us, right? Maybe I should do A, B, C, right? Yeah. Things which are replicating what my uh, parents did or my siblings or other people in, in, uh, in, uh, in my community. Uh, and uh, being in London actually opened my eyes, right? So I realized it's well, we're in uh, one of the biggest financial hubs in the world. And uh, before moving into finance, so just to, to come back, and I know I've been jumping topics, but, but again, <laughs> I came to the UK to, to do my PhD in nuclear physics, right? So I came here, I was in London, I was at Imperial College. Uh, at the time, I also had a... Uh, some entrepreneurial thoughts and startups. Yeah. That, uh, don't don't give it all do. away, Basil. We're coming. We're coming to that later. <laughs> but, but essentially, what I could notice right there, there was uh, this was a huge financial uh, hub, mm. and uh, at least at my time, there were very few people that I knew in the industry. Not to say maybe, maybe nobody, right? And this is why, to me, it's important to to look at diversity not only for people who are looking to reach out to uh, the industry, uh, to see that there are people like themselves work, 
whether it is in finance or in the investment world, but also to see that people have very similar background, very similar journeys are also uh, there in the same industry. And that, that says two things, that first of all, like you have uh, your place in that industry, yeah. that's number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, that is uh, doable, right? That nothing is impossible to do, right? So that's exactly. so why for me, diversity is important. Representation is important. I also think that, you know, diversity brings so much more to the workplace in terms of uh, a healthier working environment. It's also, I believe, diversity brings better decisions for the businesses. And also, I think, you know, you can't have a business that does not represent the world, right? You can't be servicing a client base or be in a country and your business not not to represent exactly. the country you service. So that's for so many reasons, I think, you know, uh, it has to be there just for business reasons. But then on a personal level, I'm from a minority group. You know, I just want my minority group as well to be represented. And then as you feel like uh, it's there, like in, in my own country, like we have challenges as well for female professionals like to have their place and find their place as well. They often stay behind, sadly. They think it's not for them or they don't do it or don't even think about it because they think it's a male-dominated industry. But I think we're missing out a lot, not being able to offer such a platform to uh, females and other groups, right? And that's what for me is super important. And, uh, you know, we're five siblings and my sister is the eldest. And, uh, you know, it would be impossible for me to think that she wouldn't have access to things, you know? So that's also where maybe that influenced me hugely is uh, as a child, I never saw a difference between me and her. And she never saw a difference between her and I. So I think, you know, I don't want uh, the world to, to kind of like divide based on gender or based on all the aspects of, of our uh, backgrounds. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I don't think I could have put it in better words. That was amazing everything that you said and the way you articulated it and I love what you said about women finding their place in the financial industry it goes back to why I actually called this podcast representing how I went back and forth with my friends on you know what do you think it's a good title for it and I went with that not because I I wanted just women or young girls Mm -hmm. to listen to it but just to say that this this is for you right because sometimes you have a lot of investment materials out there such as podcasts and this and this and it's mm-hmm. not excluding women but essentially when young women see this they think oh it's investments oh definitely not for me right so this is almost mm-hmm. pushing it in your face and targeting you and saying this is for you so it, I, I love what you said at the end because it's not just to say the podcast is just for women and young girls it's just to say you are included in this industry as well so this this is for you so thank you I would love to start right from the beginning you've already said that you're Moroccan I would love to go right from the start to you know where were you born and your upbringing Mm -hmm. because obviously you're in an investment profession now as well as an entrepreneur it's actually a very uh very simple thing right so um I usually say that I was born in France and then moved as a baby uh so I was born in France and I think a few months later uh I was in Morocco Right. I obviously have no recollection of any of this, of you know, but but uh, as a baby, then we were in Morocco and uh, like many families of, uh, I would say, immigrants. Right. You have the father, at least back then, that was the model where the father would be going and working in whatever country 
and you stay back home and he will come every summer, you know, and stay there for two months, one month, whatever. Right. So that was my life as a, as a, as a, as a toddler. Then I went to, uh, to school in a, uh, Catholic school actually in uh, in France. Okay. So so then I was in the Catholic school and quite frankly I think that was an amazing experience, you know. And and uh, I know I know a lot of people um, see those private schools as uh, as maybe a challenge, you know. But uh, here I was like this uh, Muslim kid, you know, uh, in this Catholic school. It was great, you know. It was essentially focused on learning, you know, and doing sports. And at the time sports and learning was fun for me and that's what I did and uh, during those years uh, I was lucky to be going back and forth between France and Morocco uh, in France the model of society was very different uh, everybody worked everybody had a job everybody had an office job but you know for me it was fascinating in Morocco my family was doing all the stuff you know it's uh, the model is very different you know you could have a small business you can have like a commerce Things like that, where it's not as structured as it yeah. was in uh, in uh, in Western Europe. I just want to go back to your Catholic school experience, and you said it was mm-hmm. amazing. What was amazing about it? Yeah. So first of all, I would say the value system was mm-hmm. exactly the same as my value system, or the value system that was given to me by my parents. You know, you had to be a good person, right? I mean, and and you know, when you grow up, like. You, you hear every day, you have to be a good guy, you have to be a good man, you have to be a good woman, whatever, right? That's somehow like the only advice I always got, you know? <laughs> you have to be a good person, you know? And, and that was the values of that place, right? How, how can you be good? And then good can be declined in so many other uh, forms, right? One of them is uh, learning, right? And obviously it's a school. So we had access to everything we wanted to learn. The library was huge, you know? And, and, you know, like I still remember, like uh, going to the library there, like picking books. And we had to pick mm-hmm. a book every week, by the way. It was mandatory. I know people looked at it as as uh, as uh, something they hated. But I don't think I had any feeling towards it. I just did because I had to do it, right? I had to pick a book and, and do it. So first of all, reading history books, that's something I loved uh, at the mm-hmm. time because it helped me just learn. And for me, it was like a, a fiction to be to be completely honest with you I don't think it was the learning of history I think it was just like going into a world and understanding what was going on in that world in that part of the world what people did and so on that was what I was fascinated with Um, and then science Uh, that's when at at that age when I got uh, my passion for science Uh, and I was I was trying to to learn a lot and and there was this uh, professor who was giving me so many math problems and just working with me extra you know after hours and so on and and that's where I felt you know really privileged uh to have like people who cared about what they did and making sure that they were there for you and maybe that's that's what I love the most is they were always there for us you know if you ask a question they were there for us if you needed help they were there for you if you wanted to be a better runner there would be a guy who would say hey let me help you be a better runner right they were like always trying to help and and that's probably what I love the most you know that's interesting and you probably I don't know if you you probably know this about yourself but what you just described is what I feel you do for me and a lot of young people at the firm you know like you're always there to support and help and I haven't touched on this previously but 
father has this Monday call <laughs> that we have <laughs> on Monday mornings at 11 a.m. just to discuss investment topics. And honestly, I think we've, it's been going on for about 18 months now since right. lockdown. And it's been insane because I found that my knowledge around investments has drastically improved just through that and then and I go wow like why are you you're so dedicated and helping and now that you've just described that professor who's helped you at school I'm like oh that's what he kind of does for us so that's really interesting how things that you experience as a child because possibly come into play later on in your life did you did you kind of know <laughs> that was that or did I just tell I, you <laughs> I didn't know but now that you say it's uh I would say it does make sense. And I will add like another mm-hmm. anecdote. There is a guy who runs this cafe called Grounded in uh, Whitechapel. And uh, and uh, one day I was sat with him and he told me, he said to me, we're just chatting, right? And he was teaching people how to become a barista, you know? And uh, he said to me, uh, the only goal in life is to pass on your knowledge. And, 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 you know, like he said that to me recently, right? And, and I looked at him and I'm like, yeah, you know what? This is what our ancestors, you know, the wise men and women of our society used to say, right? You need to pass on your knowledge. And he said that in a way and just reminded me, and like, okay, you know what? He's right. Maybe I'm not doing it enough. You know, we have to pass our knowledge. So I'm glad that the Monday call we have yeah. uh, does that. Yes, yeah. it definitely wakes me up. I can tell you that for free. <laughs> Gets me ready for the week. Well, I think mm-hmm. that call is not just sharing knowledge. I'll be honest with you. I think you know. I told you I learned a lot, but also it brings questions, mm-hmm. and that's also part of the process, right? Asking questions, and for all of us to just ask new questions, and uh, even if we don't have an answer to that new question, I think that's also super important to me. It does it does help me a lot when you guys ask uh, some of the questions. Yeah, it's extremely important. So that's that's also why I like the call myself. You know selfish speaking oh nice so sorry I know I interjected there when you were about to kind of transition from your move from Paris to Morocco so I'll let you carry on so is there like in a, in a nutshell like uh, as soon as I kind of like discovered that love for science I wanted to become a scientist right and everything I was doing almost was uh to do that you know uh, but in the same time I never looked at science as a job you know, for me, it was like, oh, I'd love to be a scientist, you know, and, and it was cool. And I was learning and understanding things. And, and um, in the same time, as a, as a teenager, you know, like uh, I usually say, like, you can never chase the Moroccan in you because then you always want to do like something <laughs> entrepreneurial, right? Like a quick yeah. business, sell something, mm-hmm. buy something, trade something, you know, mm. you see this is cheaper here, you buy it and you sell it there, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. you don't even think of a business structure because you're a teenager, right? You just say, hey, I can buy this and sell it there, right? And make money, right? Or I'm in France, I can buy it here, bring it to Morocco, sell it during the holiday seasons and so on, right? So so I was having those two kind of personalities and I had a huge respect for, for businessmen and entrepreneurs and so on, but I just felt that was outside of my world, right? That the thing that I could do was science, but those guys in business were outside of my world, just something amazing, but it's outside of my world. I can do like tiny stuff, you know, but that's it. Anyway, so I wanted to become a scientist. I went into uh, a math and physics school. And then, uh, and then like uh, from there, I remember coming to uh, the UK. First, uh, my first, uh, first time I came to the UK was actually, I went to uh, Oxford 
uh, to work on a project. Uh, it's, called, it's called the Atlas Project. So how old were you when you came into the UK? Then I, then, from yeah, so I was actually after my, so I became an adult. I was after 18 years old, right? So when I came here uh, and I was doing my degree actually in Paris, and uh, I stayed here uh, studying uh, particle physics uh, and engineering. Then I went to uh, Michigan, the University of Michigan, uh, where I did uh, nuclear engineering and uh, mathematics. And then I came over here to Imperial College, uh, where I did uh, nuclear science, uh, but it was mostly a field of mathematics that we called uh, numerical analysis. Essentially, it's using, it's using mathematics to, to simplify uh, the way we solve equations, the equations that we can solve uh, analytically. And we, at that time, it was the advent of computer science. So how do you use computers to solve those big problems? And that was what I was doing. Uh, and specifically, I was focusing on what happens in the millisecond after an explosion. You know, And uh, you, know, you have the particles, you have uh, the, the water, you have the nuclear materials, you have everything like in that tiny space, what happens? And I was describing that from a science perspective. So that's what you studied at uni. I spent yeah, I spent four years studying that, you know, and uh, and uh, during those four years, it was like it was fun, you know. I really loved it. Um, yeah. What I loved was pro- problem solving, but you know what? Uh, those years brought more to me because I was in London, and uh, that was just before the financial crisis. Wow. And uh, life was amazing over here. Like I could hear like the word the traders have done this. They, then I could hear them like living like an amazing life and so on. And, and they were the superstars of London. And uh, at the time as well, when I was uh, doing my, uh, my PhD, we were working on this startup that was doing modeling for uh, the oil and gas industry and the power industry and so on. And, and we did very well, actually. The startup did well. So when you say we were working on this startup when you were doing, so now you've moved from your degree and now you're studying, you're doing No, no, your that was in parallel. That was in, so I, I was doing a PhD and in parallel to it, uh, I was part of this startup called Ascomp. Oh, okay. And who was, uh, so you're doing your PhD and you also had a startup business. Correct. Who was part of the startup business? Was it you alone or? No, so, in, so I'll tell you the story. It's very funny. So, you know, when you go into any university these days, um, people go, they do their PhD or their research project, and then they graduate and that's it. No one looks back at that research project. That was like research was done, quite often of high quality, but then people move on because now they need to get a job, right, in the real life. Because people look at the university as it's not the real life. Just a time you have to pass there to get a degree, and that degree becomes your passport to the corporate world, right? So when I got there, there were like so many cool stuff that previous researchers had done, but they left, right? And I'm like, how can we leverage this? How can we use this in a more efficient way? And uh, the only way at the time was to create a software. And uh, we started working on it. Uh, I started working on it. Uh, And then there was another guy as well who was at uh, MIT who was doing the same thing. And there's another guy as well at ETH in Zurich who was doing the same thing. 
I know you're using these acronyms, but could you? <laughs> what, what's the ETH? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a university in uh, Zurich. It's uh, one of the best universities oh, in Sweden. Oh, I see. Okay. And, and then MIT is the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology in uh, Cambridge uh, in, uh, in the US. And they're also a great university. Um, and in this specific field, like we're all like comparable, because you know, like you think of comparing yourselves all the time in this world, right? We grew up comparing and championing ourselves to do stuff. So those guys were, I knew them because we all had the same professor. Um, they were older than me. So they had like, you know, they, they went through the program before I did, uh, but they were, they moved on and they became researchers. I was still like a very young guy doing my PhD. And essentially doing the PhDs is uh, researching a topic of interest that you believe is meaningful and can have a, uh, a meaningful impact in that field, right? And uh, it can take anywhere from three to five years, six years, seven years, depending wow. on on, uh, on your funding, if you have any funding, or on your time or your passion, or the work you do or the advances you, 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 uh, you made. So once we started to work, there was... Uh, at the time, a lot of work that was coming to us from the industry to ask us our point of view. And quite often, as you know, Esther, uh, the industry goes to the academic world to just get things tested and to check. And just for people who are listening, you're saying the industry quite a lot. What industry mm-hmm. are you referring to? At, at the time, it was the uh, energy industry. So the energy industry, the oil and gas industry within that, and the power industry. To, to tell you like exactly, so you know, like at the time people were looking into complex systems. Like what does happen like at the bottom of a reservoir, right? People just didn't know. There was no camera to send there, right? So you had to imagine using physics of what happens when you have a very high pressure, very high temperature, and the only thing you could have is sensors. So maybe you could send, you have a sensor for knowing what's happening with the pressure or you know with the flow, and those things were helping were helping you understand or at least confirm whether your view of what happens there is correct. And we were the experts, right? We will just design things and compare with our models whether we will get mathematically the same value for the pressure than what the sensor was, was writing. And if it was right, then we had the right model, right? In short. I'm very simplifying things. So, so when this was, these guys were coming to us, they were really paying us a lot, Esther. And, and I was a kid, right? And, and you know, when someone comes and pays you a lot, you're like, oh, there's something there, right? I should yeah. do it more. And that's why, like, we started by, started with doing some consulting work, uh, which we were allowed to do 50 days uh, a year. And the only way to do more was, like, if you have a business, you know? So, so how was that? So we started the business studying doing your PhD and you've got this startup with two others how did you manage your time you know you're studying at the same time how did you get people to take your business seriously mm-hmm. yes those are the good questions so in terms of time management uh, at the time so you had to have your supervisor you had to approve your your outside activities right and uh, at the time uh, my supervisor was very business savvy Right, so actually, he ended up working with us in the startup. You recruited your supervisor. You know, and, and <laughs> nice. 
but he was great, right? He was really good. And um, we, uh, you know, we sometimes like working the whole week on a project, which was a commercial project. And then we had during the weekend work on the PhD work. So, so there was no strict rule. At least I can't really remember, to be fully honest with you, Esther, I can't really remember uh, whether I had strict rules. I don't think I had. I think I was doing whatever was urgent first, you know. Uh, and that, that's the reality. Uh, and, uh, and, and then we had more and more work. We had more and more people involved. And, and I'll tell you why people were coming. So eventually people come to you if they perceive that you're an expert in the field. Right, or if you know what you're talking about, and very quickly we we got there. On um, we knew what we were talking about, but in the same time, uh, we had access to technology that people didn't have. So we had those super fast computers that, at the time, were not common in the industry. Now you have them, you know, everywhere, but at the time they were not common. So if you have an advantage, I don't know you have the fastest car, the biggest truck, whatever, people might come to you because you have. An advantage, and that's the advantage we had. We had supercomputers, and also people thought we knew what, what we were talking about. We weren't the only one who knew what we were talking about, but we are one of them. So, and how and, did you gain uh, access to these fast computers that no one else had? We actually, after we made some money, we bought them. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you basically reinvested what you made back into the business. Is that right? That, that's correct. That's okay. correct. Nice. And uh, and at the time it was tricky because uh, the maintenance was actually the most expensive thing. You know, you had to keep a low temperature, like no dust in the room and things like that, right? So like your iPhone today, that is an amazing piece of of hardware. But at the time, like uh, it, it was it was very expensive, but it was very useful. And also uh, in terms of business, uh, Esther, something that I learned back then was actually the networking aspect of things. I was a good networker. I was uh, I was good at going and speaking with people and and then formulating as well uh, the service. What could we do for them? And uh, it took me a while, but at the time I was taking a lot of books out there. That was uh, the books that were written for uh, consultants. And I was like, okay, you know what? And I learned about the McKinsey consultants and so on. And I was like, I just need to apply the same uh, approach to this business. So we're going to see people and, and, and make sure that we can write a proposal that made sense. And all I was doing was writing those proposals. And I knew exactly what kind of deliverable we could, we, we could uh, get and how much it would cost for two hours, but then how much we could price it as well to the guys. And, uh, and that's why I was uh, managing the business that way, because I was just knowing who the guys. And once I had a client who did something, I knew the other ones had the same problem. So we'll go and see the other ones and say, hey, we just did this and this. Nice. Uh, we could do it for you. And uh, eventually uh, that took off and we had like most of the biggest energy companies as clients. Uh, it, was, it was a very positive experience. Then we, we, uh, the IP was sold to a company and then the servicing was uh, being done through another business. And the, the servicing was essentially how do you teach people to do the, the thing themselves. So they were going now into the companies, the energy companies and so on, and teaching the engineers, how do you do the modeling yourself? How do you do the sizing of the pipe? How do you design the exchangers and so on and so on? And, uh, and then I moved on to uh, 
to the solar business. And, uh, and that, <laughs> really that a was, businessman. <laughs> that, that was, uh, funnily enough, the, 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 I usually say that was the biggest mistake I made, right? Uh, but well, moving uh, into the solar business was the. I, I was uh, for me, solar <laughs> was like the future, but I was too early, right? From a business perspective, mm-hmm. you know, I was I was too early as there, you know, it was uh, too soon. I didn't have the understanding of how business worked at the time, you know, and and also, you know, as there, I think it's important in life to kind of fail young, because then you learn about yourself, right? Until then, I never had a failure, and working in that solar business didn't work well. So that was my first failure in a way. And uh, it's good because you need to fail to understand that, you know, uh, life goes into cycles and so on. And until then, like I never had like a big failure, right? Life was just going on. Like many people, right? I'm sure like yourself, Lester, many of your friends and family, life was good so far. There hasn't been any big challenges, a big failure that kind of like shook them, right? And, and wow. for me, that was something that was like a shaking moment. So I was like, wow. Uh, yeah, I learned a lot about myself, about uh, business and so on. And and at the time I was done with university and uh, I took uh, some time off. Uh, I traveled a lot. I went to, I went back to Morocco, then to West Africa, stayed there, then nice. went to Asia. And uh, Before, before we come on to that, I just want to, because I think that for a lot of young people who listen to this, who probably don't really see many people going into business the way the majority go especially in the UK in London after studying is to just go and work for an organization right Mm -hmm. so I really just want to touch on you obviously were studying you had your own business for people listening who want to essentially think about starting their own business it could be Mm -hmm. in any field it doesn't have to be in energy or solar for example what tips would you give and you know in terms of profitability of businesses as well how how do you ensure that you're running a profitable business what do you look out for if you were advising someone who wanted to try business out you know mm-hmm. it doesn't doesn't really matter you don't have to win the first time round but just from no. your experience what sort of advice would you give I will, I will say two things right number one if you have a client you have a business nice as simple as that Find someone who is willing to pay you for something, anything, right? And that's, that's, you have a business, you know. Number two, I usually say, try to make sure you have a payment made, made within 30 days. I like that because, you know, like quite often, like we are very comfortable, like creating a world in our minds where in 12 months we'll be super successful, right? And in 12 months, life will be amazing. In 12 months, I'll have these. In 12 months, you know, the business will do like X million dollars. In 12 months, whatever, right? And uh, that 12 months dream never happens, you know? <laughs> so it's better to just focus on, on something extremely simple. Uh, even if you just get 100 pounds payment, but get it before 30 days, just to kind of, get the mechanics of the business going. And that's why I usually say like, you need to oil the machine. Just get that 100 pounds in or 50 pounds or whatever, just get them in. And then you'll find a way to get another 50 pounds in and so on. Just those are the two things. If you have a client, you have a business and gets any money in before 30 days. Yeah. And in terms of, cause I know you have a very, you know, I don't, don't know whether to call it a strong mindset when it comes to these things, but 
what does deter people away from business sometimes is when you see yourself failing quite earlier on, especially the, the frustration from this doesn't work or this doesn't work, you know, mm-hmm. what type of mindset should you have whilst approaching these things? Because it's not always going to work straight away. Course, so what, what can you say on that? Uh, look, I mean, I'm sure you've heard from everybody saying never give up, right? So, so that's something that, you know, uh, I usually say it's important to not give up. But in the same time, uh, you shouldn't hang on to something that doesn't work, right? Uh, I would say, like, you don't give up in, in things where, for sure, someone does the same thing and get paid for it, you know? If someone is doing the same business and getting paid for it and you want to do something similar and you won't be able to, and you're not successful, then there's something that you need to look into it. Maybe there's something that you need to readjust. So it's always reflecting and, and having this feedback feedback loop. You know, it's important. Yeah. And um, I usually say as well, you know, Esther is um, quite often when we start something, we, we feel very, very emotional about what we do uh, as a business. And that's why, invested, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's when it's actually very good to have a group of friends or people outside that you value uh, who can give you a some feedback, whether it is objective or subjective, right? It doesn't really matter. I think feedback is feedback. Whether people are subjective or objective doesn't really matter. Even they're emotional or not, I like to get feedback no matter what because then it's my job to decipher the feedback it's okay, this one was an emotional feedback. This one was rational and so on. Just get feedback from people outside and uh, and just, you know, try to to see whether it makes sense or not to, to incorporate that feedback. Maybe it doesn't, but you need to get it, right? And uh, But then you need to give yourself a chance to, to succeed. Thank you so much. And I hope that really resonates with people who are listening and thinking about that in future. So we've spoken about, you know, you studying and starting up two businesses, one which was really profitable and one you described as a mistake, uh, which always happens with entrepreneurship. And then you went traveling for a bit. So people are probably thinking, hmm, so you work in investment management now, but so far I'm hearing education, businesses. And so how yes. and why? Did you end up here? Look, uh, Esther, there are two things. I would say like, uh, you know, when I was uh, carrying my life, you know, I always heard about the finance world. And when I was in the uh, solar industry, you know, we had to go and beg for money, essentially, right? To get our <laughs> things done. And, and, uh, mm. and, uh, and that was like when I was like, okay, so these other guys in the ecosystem that decide of what works and doesn't work, where what can be invested and not invested and so on. And, and that was like my very first um, challenge is like, how do you convince the finance guys that your idea is worth something? And also that, you know, I realized that, you know, you, you, will, you will never have enough savings to do like big stuff, you know? And that if your idea is great, everybody would want to put money in it. If your idea is great and no one wants to put money in it, then there's a problem. So, you know, I was like, okay, uh, there was this finance guys. Then I made a mistake with the, the business. So on my travels, I was trying just to kind of uh, analyze. And I told you, I used to be a scientist. So we love analyzing stuff. And I was trying to reflect. And I realized that uh, I manage the business like some of the guys in my family back home do, right? You just like, it was not professional enough, you know? 
there wasn't the science of management behind. And I made some uh, some mistakes in allocating resources. I made mistakes in the, I made the wrong decisions essentially, Esther. And uh, while out there, there was a a huge number of uh, books and studies and so on and, on on how to do things, and, and I was just uh, not knowledgeable in that field. So I needed that time alone to to get myself up to speed on on what is the uh, state of the art in managing things. And obviously, from there, like I realized, well, you know what? If I'm successful, like I should be able to have uh, the management of assets of as my job, right? I'd be managing my own assets, hopefully. It never really happened that way, right? So I'm like, <laughs> let me find a way. Let me find a way to to get exposure to people who have successful companies. And there was a guy who was in the same university as I as I as I was, so a guy from Imperial College, and uh, and uh, you know the guy is uh, still there actually. And uh, when I reached out, it was like, hey, why don't you come and work on on real time algorithms uh, to access financial data? and uh, for the portfolios to be updated in real time. So that's how I got in, in the finance world is working in portfolio management and uh, building a piece of software, a piece of code uh, to get real time uh, financial data uh, and update the portfolios we had on a very large scale, which involved again, uh, the mindset of supercomputers, right? So that's how I got into it. And uh, from there, like I was super interested in understanding how uh, money is invested, how people allocate. And I was lucky at the time Esther, to meet people who were in this, in the, in this field mm-hmm. who openly shared with me and guided me and told me. And, and then I learned a lot through them. And uh, I took again a year because at the time when I, when I started, it was on a contract basis. And then after a year, I'm like, you know what? Uh, let me join. And uh, I'm going to actually work on, on distribution. And how to to uh, to interact with this uh, pool of assets, and uh, that's how the journey started, Esther. And so I'm just gonna let you elaborate because I know that some people listening might not know the difference between you know you've spoken about you started in portfolio management, and now you're speaking about distribution. Do you just want to elaborate on the differences between both? Oh, definitely. So I may just probably just kind of like start with a just like a high level description. Uh, you know, in any business, you need uh, a product and uh, you need uh, to sell a product, right? That product could be a service. It could be anything. In our case, the product is a um, is a financial product where people essentially uh, invest their their money and their savings and so on. And they're, uh, and they're hoping to get uh, a return of that money. So the money is invested. It goes into the markets. And hopefully, after a long enough period of time, there is a return on that uh, initial investment. So, uh, so the firm then will will take that money and put it into a strategy, right? And the whole team that takes care of building that strategy, which is the product, is the portfolio the portfolio team. So there is the design aspect and then the management aspect of it. Think of it like it's an evolving product that changes because the things change out there, right? And that's the product. And uh, so I joined the team that was working on the product. So that's the portfolio team. And then you have the distribution, which is essentially the sales guy. So the product has to be sold to somebody. And uh, someone has to bring the product and bridge it between the firm and clients. 
Uh, so that's what I call distribution. And uh, distribution does more than just the, the setting the product. It's also then servicing the client, working with the client. And there's a feedback loop with the product guys because if the product is not fit for the market, the distribution guys say, hey, you know what? Clients don't like it because ABC, or they love it because ABC, or maybe if we tweak the product. And that feedback loop goes back to the product guys, the portfolio managers. And uh, they might change the product, adjust it, add preferences like uh, sustainability and others. That's uh, essentially, in a nutshell, uh, those two departments. And you have obviously the third one, which is the management, right? Which takes care of the processes and the routines and the, and the legal and so on. And people can also build a career in the management aspects of anything. And here specifically in finance, uh, that should be it. Yeah, I'm sure people who didn't understand how the roles work together in the industry are very grateful for your description of that. So I'll let you carry on from when you moved to the distribution side. What was next mm-hmm. for you after switching over from portfolio management to distribution? Yeah, so I joined a company that was um, new in Europe. In a way, uh, the company was very much entrepreneurial almost like a startup. And this is something I liked at the time. The reason I'm saying that is because um, my remit was not confined into, hey, you can only do this. This is what you have to do and so on. There was a lot of freedom of, on what we could do. And we were looking at Europe and said, okay, what can we do here, right? And when I say Europe, it was actually the Europe, Middle East and Africa, right? It was the whole, the whole market. It also included uh, countries such as um, the ex-Soviet uh, countries. So that was also something that was included in our, in our huge uh, market where we could distribute the products that, uh, that so we looked into. And at the time, like you look at the market, but then you look as well at what kind of investors you want to be, right? You have the financial advisors, then you have financial institutions, you have wealth managers, you have private banks, you have investment banks, you have consultants, and then you have institutional investors, you have pension funds, and so on and so on, all the way to the sovereign wealth funds, so the, the very large investors. And uh, quite often people, what they do is they choose an investor type because they will have a specific way of, of choosing the products, and then you choose a market. So an example, you could say, I want to work with... Um, with private banks in Switzerland, yeah. right? That's quite often what people did at the time. And um, I, when I moved to distribution, I didn't really have the preference uh, immediately, right? So it took me actually a year to realize that I wanted to work with sovereign wealth funds and central banks and supranationals, uh, sort of very large uh, sovereign entities. So that's that's what I wanted to, to do. And uh, at the time, we didn't have the team. So we're just working in a very free environment. And, um, and because also uh, of my earlier software business, I had the opportunity to meet people from the energy industry who at the time, as you know, Esther, were like doing pretty well financially. Mm. So they needed as well financial and investment advice, yeah. right? And it did happen with the same guys that I knew. So I'm like, okay, so I know those guys. I know how they think. So maybe it does make sense for me to focus on those sovereign entities. And um, early on, a lot of people associated those sovereign wealth funds with the Middle East. 
because there are so many other people over there. in here because I know I work in distribution as well. And I know sometimes these words are so familiar to us that we forget. Some people don't mm. know what these things mean, you know? Mm-hmm. So please, could you elaborate on what right. sovereign wealth funds are? And um, I know most people probably know what central banks are, but also supranational organizations. That would be great. Yeah, for sure. So first, I'll start with the uh, supranationals. So supranational are, if I give you examples, are the World Bank, the IMF, uh, the European Central Bank, you know, things which are like institutions that manage money, which are bigger than the countries, right? And they don't depend on a specific country. That's why we call them like supranationals. Many countries will contribute to the budget of those institutions. Uh, there's the World uh, Health Organization as well. Uh, so those are the supranationals. Then the uh, sovereign wealth funds are actually institutions that benefit uh, from the status of being a sovereign entity. So they're not taxed, for example, uh, if they follow a specific behavior of being a long-term investor in the in any market. But those institutions were set up uh, by governments around the world to, uh, to gather the assets of the country. And those could be financial assets, or they could be companies, or it could be resources of the country. And to manage those resources for future generations. So to give you a very simple example, think of it of the very first sovereign bond that was created was actually in Kuwait, right? But around the world, there's many of them. If you take one, um, an example, the Alaska, the Alaska one. Alaska has a lot of resources and they sell oil and with the revenues, the revenues goes into a fund and those revenues uh, are then managed uh, in financial markets so that uh, you can provide for the states in the future, whether it is a budget shortfall or for the future generations. So once those resources are fully depleted, then future generations can still benefit from uh, what that part of the world had. So the sovereign entities are built that way. And um, they're seen as one of the largest investors uh, in the world. Yeah, thank you. That I was, hope that was clear. Yes, that was very clear. That was fantastic. Thank you. I'll let you um, carry on. Yeah, so, so that's, uh, that's the segment. We call them as well official institutions, right? Because uh, quite often they, they do have to report to a Ministry of Finance or to some sort of uh, uh, official uh, representation of the country where they are. And uh, so as I, we in the firm, like we started to focus on that and understand how do we talk with these companies, uh, who, uh, sorry, with these institutions, who they are, how do they invest, how do they think, uh, what is the profile of people who go and work there, how do they invest, what is their ethos, how, what are their values, and so on. And, and we're just trying to learn more about them and uh, then understand whether we're fit for, for that business segment. Right, because sometimes you 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 are, you see a market, but maybe you're not fit for it. Maybe your product is not for them. Maybe the way you sell doesn't suit them. You know, let's say if you're a digital business, but people only buy when they meet face to face. Then, even though there is a market there, it will not be yours, right? Because you're not distribution and the product doesn't suit that that customer segment, right? And uh, in that case, uh, it did actually suit us because they like. Uh, the long-term investors, and they uh, they look into how we we think. Uh, they're very much academically driven, and so on. So 
there was some kind of fit, right? So from there, we we uh, we just tried to to meet all of them, you know, and go out there and meet them and develop our understanding, our network, uh, and uh, and this is how the team was uh, created. You know? Wow! And now many years later, I'm still uh, working in this field. I actually really much love understanding how those vast pools of capital are allocated. And uh, as you know, Esther, that's also why the, that Monday call exists. Yeah. You know, I love, I love understanding the flow of capital. And you know, when I was a kid, I was always fascinated by that. It was like something that I felt I was never able to know or access, right? But for everybody who is listening, you know, it's important to know that everything is out there, right? And everything is uh, doable in a way. Uh, but for me, it was uh, something I wanted to know. And, and uh, this is why I worked in it. Also, being you know um, at that level uh, allowed me as well to just better understand many things, right? Better understand the markets, better understand companies, better understand what's successful or not, and better understand as well why people make decisions. That was absolutely brilliant. You didn't just kind of like have the normal route of going to university mm-hmm. and coming into you know working for an investment management firm. Right, you went all the way to doing your PhD, you know, starting up one business, which was really successful, starting up another business, which wasn't so successful. And you went, you know what? I need to understand how the money flows around these mm-hmm. decision makers. How do they allocate these funds and go in? I'm going to work for this industry to see how it all works, which is amazing. And it just shows how you can change your mind and just create your own path which I think is wonderful. And I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation. And it's such a pleasure to speak to you every week on a Monday morning. Honestly, I just always feel like I'm always taking something away. I'm sure we'll have more of these conversations. So I won't hold you any longer because you're probably waiting to get started with your weekend. Do you have any uh, nice weekend plans or is it a chilled one? First of all, thank you, Esther, and always happy to uh, to share and uh, and uh, cover anything you know that could be useful. And I would say, to your point, uh, going into the industry was uh, something nice for me. But I feel um, feel I would just want to make sure that everybody know that they they have access to almost Absolutely. anything they want. Mm-hmm. And the access, I'm not gonna say it's an easy access because we know it's, it's not. not. Uh, but I think people need to make sure they. They uh, they just go for for it. They go for what they want. Uh, that's number one. And number two, that actually there are a lot of people out there who have the same same life journey, and uh, so they need to connect with them, right? They need to find a way to connect and then to understand. It doesn't mean that that person will be helpful by bringing them inside of the industry, but maybe explaining their journey and the step that they took might help them refine their way to get into whatever they want, right? And uh, but that it's on them to reach out to those guys and, and ladies and, and speak with them and say, hey, uh, this is what I want to do. And, and you know what? If you do it, do it. You know, and if it takes just one year after a year, you don't like it, yeah. you know what? Mm-hmm. Right? There's nothing wrong with that. It's always okay to change one's mind, right? I would say people should always allow themselves yeah. to change their minds. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, so I'm excited for the weekend, Esther. So thank you to you. Have a have some some of my friends who are American actually they're doing a Thanksgiving dinner today, 
as opposed to next oh, week. Nice. So, so I'm going there. Oh, you're going. Um, oh, you're going over, over to the states, or they're coming here. No, no, sorry, I'm going over. They're over here in London. Oh, they're sorry. here in they're London. In okay. London. Mm-hmm. But next week they're not here, so they wanted to do a a pre Thanksgiving yeah. dinner for their friends over here. So I'm going there, and then uh, just going to be a relaxed weekend. Oh, lovely! And just as you were saying the other night, I just wanted to add as well that people from minority backgrounds would, would often think there's no room for me here. So I hope that after hearing by the story, just come to understand. And plus, th- just making the connections. For example, if I chose not to work in, in this industry, I would have never met Bada. Right, I would have never been able to, uh, you know, badger him with questions all the time, or you know, mm-hmm. come with queries that I have. So it's just about connecting with people who think like you as well. So definitely encourage anyone out there who's listening and thinking about sure. uh, joining the industry that it is something that you can do. It's, it might not be easy, but nothing, nothing's really easy, is it? <laughs> you know, Esther, I want to add one last yeah. thing. You know, and I hear it sometimes from uh, people who, you know, we always forget that most people don't live in London, right? Because we, we hear. Yeah, that's true. But Guilty. I think even, <laughs> even that, people have to overcome the challenge of saying I need to move to a new city. You know, I think, I think that's the first challenge. And I've seen a lot of people, even back home in Morocco, saying, oh, I dream of living in London. And I'm like, yeah, just move to London. Yeah, but it's impossible. Like, would I fit there? You know, mm, I didn't think that. about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I hear people as well from uh, other towns in the UK that kind of like, they don't know whether London is for them, you know? My answer is yes, it's for you, it's for everybody. But you know what? In a world where everything is being done remote, you can, mm. you can be anywhere these days, yeah. right? And that's also a way for, for people to look at it and say, hey, you know what? I can get a job where the office is in London. If I like London, I stay in London. If not, I can work remotely, right? So that even opens more to, to many more people. Very well said, Bada. Again, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll have more of these conversations in future. Thank you so much, Esther. And thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Representing Her podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, subscribe and get in contact with any questions you might have. Be sure to share with anyone who might find value in these conversations and follow us on Instagram to keep up to date with us. See you on the next episode. Bye.